We are continuing our study on Philippians. Our passage today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. It's actually 18a. This is something that pastor people do. We add letters to it so that we can cut a verse in half. And so this is 18a. It makes sense when you read it. The people messed up when they were doing the Bible verse separations. Anyway, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And as we have done this study, we've seen that God has transformed sorrows in our life into joy. That he takes the things in our life and through, the, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, all things are being made new within us, even all of the sad things. It's not just that the sad things are being made neutralized, but God is actually transforming every heartache, every brokenness, every tragedy. He transforms it into a place of joy. What we're going to see in today's passage in particular is that it's not just great for us. Like if you get in on this church Christianity thing, God will do that for you. But really, this passage is about how as Jesus is known throughout the world, that joy is magnified and expands, or the word Paul uses is advance. And so we're going to read that this morning, and then we'll talk about it, as we always do. It says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am Put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me, while the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is God's word. I'm going to pray. God, I pray that you would give us joy in hard things. I pray that you would give us a passion for your message, for the message of your life, your death, and your resurrection. And I, I confess that we do not have that passion frequently, often, sometimes at all. We often see the hard things and the broken stories, God, and we think that they are the story but give us a passion that we might see all of our lives and that we would rejoice. That you would make it clear to us that through our lives, you're making your appeal to the world. Uh, amen. This passage starts with him saying, now brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me you know, has caused blah, 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 right? The question that I think any normal person would ask is, what is it that's happened to this fella, right? What's happened to him? So here's the, the brief story. Paul, I'll skip the first half of his life. Paul ended up becoming one of the, just the best speakers about the gospel, really kind of the world has ever known. He was part of a team of people that, that traversed like the Middle East, 
Asia, what's now Turkey, and Greece. And what he and his team would do is they would go to these towns, they would find people that feared God or were spiritual but not religious, or religious but not spiritual, but just anybody who was open to something, and they would talk to them about Jesus, his resurrection, and what that meant for for them. And they would find a few people who would believe, and then they would teach them and train them on how to be the church, how to live the way of Jesus, in that place, and then they would move on. And they kept doing this all over, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, some places for years, where they built a huge network of of people that followed Jesus who would go out to all of these different remote towns and do the exact same thing. And Paul was very good at this. He was a gifted speaker. Even people that just sort of study rhetoric and those sorts of things will look at what Paul did throughout his life and say, wow, This is a person who could really eloquently speak in front of people, who could really reason with others. Uh, He was also uh, really prophetic in his ability to call people up, to encourage people, to help new leaders go out and do stuff. It was really unmatched. Honestly, it's still unmatched. I mean, we've had some great, you know, Billy Graham crusades and things like that, but it was pretty unmatched. And that was what he was doing with his life. It was going pretty well, honestly. There were some parts of his story that weren't super fun, spent some time in prison every now and then, but who doesn't, right? And then he had this urge, well, to go back to Jerusalem, the place where he was from. Uh, and he, he hadn't been there for several years, and he wanted to go back. That's where the church really began, you know, the whole Jesus story, and he's going to go back. There's people that tell him, if you go back, you're going to die, you're going to go to prison, it's not going to work out for you, and he says, no, I'm still going to go. He had a dream, he had a vision, he got on the boat, he went back. As soon as he gets off the boat, he's arrested by the same people that arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. They're still trying to get Christianity to stop existing, like this little cult thing that started out of Judaism is now taking over their entire city and society, and it's a real problem for them, and Paul is a pretty important figure, so they arrest him. And he goes to trial after trial. He gets moved around to different cells, different cities, different towns. He first has this trial before Felix, who's a Roman governor of sorts, then before Festus, who's a another one, and then that guy says, oh, let's go to Agrippa, and so then he has these trials. He basically spends two years moving around from cell to cell, quietly being ignored. And then finally, he says, I want to make my appeal before Rome, because at that time, if you're a Roman citizen and you were charged of a crime, you could say, I want to go talk to the big guy, the big boss. I want to go to the emperor, to the king, and so that's what he does. He rides a boat, There's all sorts of fun stuff that happens. He's so good at what he does that the boat shipwrecks, and then he even starts a church on this island of Malta. I mean, that's how good he is at this stuff. Then he gets back on a boat. He finally ends up in Rome where he's put in house arrest for at least two years just waiting to give his final thing before the the emperor to make his case complete. And that's, that's when he says, this thing that's happened to me, he is talking about the last four years of his life where he's been trapped in a little cell, where he's been detached from the work and the calling and the desire, oftentimes from most of the teammates and the people that he loves so dearly, he's detached from all of them, sequestered in this house or in this cell. 
And then in Rome, he was put in house arrest, which is really, he was in this small flat where there were Roman guards in front and they could see whoever came in and whoever went out and it was never him. And that's the thing that's happened. And you might think, man, that's got to be the end of this big gospel movement, right? I mean, here it is. This is the most talented, the best of all the best. And he's put in a cell for four years. Surely that will kind of end it. That's got to be the end of his ministry. He can't be going from house to house talking to people. No new people getting converted. His leadership skills are completely neutralized. I mean, he's just writing these tiny letters. I mean, there's like, this is like 800 words, this letter. I mean, that's, that's nothing. It's all over. In fact, this is the same time that the other apostles were kind of the originals. were all dying or being killed. It was in this decade that Peter would be killed. Uh, you know, one of Jesus's main disciples. It's also in this decade that John's going to be sent out into exile and never be heard from again, just sort of be on this island for, for years and years and years. And so you might think, ah, oh, that's, that's it. Like, this is where Christianity dies. It's not going to happen. That was it. Christianity had a nice run. But Paul says, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the very thing they've tried to kill. The gospel has actually flourished through all of these things, not died. It's gone to new places. It's not been sequestered. Uh, there's an Anglican priest, Stephen Foster, out of the church, St. Aldi's Church in Oxford, who kind of makes a really great point that I'm going to summarize, but he says, this whole thing ought to be the greatest encouragement to us. Uh, so if anyone's ever felt like uh, they're losing their status because of what they believe, like people look at you a little weird now because you believe in this. If you've ever been misunderstood, if you've ever been sequestered, if you've ever been overlooked, if you've ever been punished, or if you've ever lost your home, or you've ever been imprisoned, or you've ever been rejected, or you've ever faced famine, or even led being led to your death because of Jesus, we can all take an encouragement in this thing that Paul is saying. None of that will ever, under any circumstance, stop Jesus. See, throughout history, the greatest uh, empires humanity has ever created, they have all tried to wipe the gospel off the face of the globe. They've used prisons, they've used torture, They've used assimilation and synergism, like where they co-opt Christianity and they try to add Christianity to their thing, like the Nazis in Germany. They've tried it all. They've used exile. They've issued laws. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, and those efforts haven't really worked that well. And it's not that the gospel or the church has survived these onslaughts, like uh, we've bunkered down and we've survived. It's not that we've thrived despite these things. Like, yeah, these things are happening, but we're great. We've kobe this thing. Like, yeah, we have no knees anymore. We have no strength, but we're going to push through. Mamba mentality. Some of y'all know what that is. Others of you, skip ahead. 
It's not because of we've survived. It's not because we've thrived despite it. But Paul is saying right here to these brothers and sisters is that the suffering itself has accelerated the gospel. It's like pouring water on a grease fire. It only makes the flames and everything else bigger. Why? Because Jesus will not be defeated. If the grave didn't do it, then an empire won't. Uh, If the cross couldn't destroy him, then nothing else will. In fact, this is what's the center of Christianity, is this message, right, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We talk about it every week. But at the very center of it is an empire and a government and a political system and religious people who have conspired to get masses of people. They've they've created allegiances to bring about his death. Like that's what's happening on the cross. And it's yet that exact thing, him being killed by the state, by an empire that actually is the salvation for the entire world. The tomb is a place where he's supposed to be put so that he will be forgotten. Like, that's what happens with graves and tombs. Like, we all sit around at a funeral, and we see the tombstone. We're like, we're never going to forget, but you're going to die, your kids are going to die, and that tomb will one day just be walked over by somebody else, right? That's what the tomb is supposed to be. But it's in that tomb that, the, that is given to Jesus that's supposed to be the end of him, that is actually the beginning of a whole new world. That is why the gospel cannot be defeated. And not just defeated, but in every suffering hard thing, it only magnifies the gospel. Jesus came to save the world, and he will do it. He came to make himself known, and he will be known. He came to make all things new, and he will make it all new. The gospel always moves forward because it's good news to a perishing world, and it's the power of God to save. So this this means a few things for me. It means, one, I'm not very afraid of cultural trends that are supposedly going to destroy the gospel. I think one of the best ways to get Uh, on the New York Times op-ed thing, which I love reading the opinions of New York Times. It's like that and doing the crossword puzzle. It's my favorite part of the New York Times. But every couple of years, somebody gets to write this obituary to the church and Christianity and won't exist anymore, ever, except the gospel keeps growing. Grace wins, mercy wins, Jesus wins. I went down this really intense rabbit hole this past week just because I was like, are all these things true? Like, is Christianity, even as, is Christianity dying in L.A. County? Actually, Christianity in Los Angeles County has grown over the last 10 years, not gotten smaller. Did you know that? Yeah, but we think, we think we're like losing. So anyway, grace always wins, mercy wins, Jesus wins. Maybe not in ballot boxes, maybe not in the box office, but it wins. This also means, probably way more importantly, that whatever happens in my life, whatever happens in your life, whatever disease or financial downturn, whatever issues come up with your children, whatever career ends in a dead end, it will all advance the gospel 
Because Jesus will accomplish it with every part of your story. Every part. Whatever happens to this church, Jesus will advance the gospel. At the end of time, when all is settled, we will look back and we will say, oh, he was always making himself great and known. So Paul says, I rejoice because the gospel advanced. How can he rejoice when all that terrible stuff happened to him? Because for Paul, the message of Jesus was the reality of all salvation for all people. It's so lovely, so powerful, so good. And so I keep praying, again, give us that kind of passion for the gospel. This passage says more, so I know I spent a lot of time on like three words. There's more. There's three ways. Like how does it advance the gospel is the next logical thing. Like how did that actually, he says this thing that's happened has advanced the gospel. How? First he says, through the whole palace guard, they all know now. They've all come to understand. It's all become clear to them that he is in chains because of Christ. Which is like, oh, that's some really great at rhetoric, right? Great speaker, great communicator. What does that mean? Why is that a powerful thing? He's talking about these people who've dedicated their lives to the empire, who fought battles for Caesar, who have gone to the remote parts of the world for Caesar, who've dedicated their professional life, probably even their personal life, to making sure they could continue to rise up. You know, like how do people become... uh, the secret service agents. It's like through a long process, right? How do you become an astronaut? You have to dedicate yourself to the whole field and to do all of the things and then be the right person at the right time. These guards are those kinds of people. They've given their lives to Caesar and, it's, and he's saying they now understand that I'm in chains because of Christ, not because of Caesar. Like that's a powerful, subversive statement. The gospel advances when someone sees that Jesus' power is far beyond, exceeds the power that they've given to their own lives. They're watching what happens to Paul and around Paul. People are coming and going into his little house where he's not leaving. The church is bringing him food. They're meeting his needs. They're having these times in this house. It's all really lovely. It also includes the church of Philippi. The reason that he's writing this letter back is it's a thank you letter of sorts where they've sent him some money and some supplies and this guy Epaphroditus shows up and hands that stuff to to Paul. The soldiers, I'm just speculating, you know, when he arrives, they're like, oh, were you in town visiting? No, no, I got on a boat and I sailed along the sea so that I could come and deliver this thing to Paul. They watch all of that stuff. And then they grow in this awareness that Christ, that Jesus, is actually in control of Paul's life, not Caesar. It's not, wow, Paul has great friends. It's not, wow, Paul's really leading this crazy, subversive thing over here. It's not even, Paul's really nice. You know, he's not saying, they've become completely convinced that Paul is nice. No, the entire guard, it says, every soldier, everyone that's come and taken their turn with Paul, they've all come to the conclusion that Christ is making something huge out of his life and his entire situation. 
and it's not Caesar. They've dedicated themselves to all of these things, and yet they're looking and they're now at this conviction that even Rome's judicial system is weak compared to the supremacy of Jesus. This is the power of someone seeing Jesus having power beyond what they're giving their lives to. This is the profound, intentional thing that has to happen in someone's life for them to come to the awareness and come to grips with the fact that, oh, what's happening in your life far exceeds what I'm trusting, what I'm putting my trust in in my life. They're seeing... uh, you know, the way that, that we might live our lives, they're saying, oh, that's a different kind of trust or hope. The way that we exist in community and walk together through grief and sorrows and sadness, oh, that's a different kind of hope and grief. There's a different presence of God amidst all of this suffering. It's never failed for Midal and I. Everywhere we've lived, in all of the different homes, in all of the different neighborhoods, we've always had someone come up to us and say, why is it that you have these random people coming to your house all the time? There's, in Portland, there was this one neighbor, Nicole. The way we met her, she came up to us and she said, hey, I have this broken crib, do you want it? And we're like, we do not want to be friends with her. Like, what kind of generosity is that? This neighbor comes and we're like, our houses were this far apart so we could hear everything. It's like, so she knew we were pregnant because we're like that close to each other. And then so she came and she's like, ah, oh, do you want this broken thing that I have? I'm like, ah, don't want this friend. We became friends, usually through a different neighbor who threw cocktail hours every day. He was like a, yeah, he was just really rich and had nothing else to do. And he's like, here's my tequila. And we were like, this is good tequila. We will be at your party. (laughs) Portland's depressing. But we became really good friends with these people. Nicole watched our lives very closely. We did all of these things where they would probably say about us, wow, Brad and Morella are super nice. They're really good people. Their community that comes, their church people are very respectful. They don't park in the spots that we don't want them to park in. They're really nice folks. Sometimes they serve the school. They would have had that kind of inclination. And we were trying to do all of this stuff to make the gospel really clear. Until Mirel and I started going to counseling every week. It was intense. It's none of your business. It's my business. You know what I mean? But we were going through all of this stuff and Every week on a Tuesday, someone from our community would show up and watch our daughter, Nora, and then we would go away for a couple hours and we would come home and we had been people that had just cried, you know, like that's the thing that you can see. And what would happen is this lady watched us and eventually one day when we got home, we got out of the car, having gone to counseling, and she came up like, what's happening in your life? Because every week you go away and someone from your church comes and watches your kid and then you come back and you're crying. And we're like, oh, we're going to marriage counseling. These are the things happening in our lives and this is what we're learning about forgiveness and grace. She goes, oh, thank God, I thought one of you had cancer. And that's what was happening here. It's like, no, actually, that might be easier in some ways. But what's happening is this really wonderful thing. And it wasn't until then that she started to recognize the power of Jesus in our lives. Like that was when, which was so frustrating because I had lived a really cool life and thrown really good parties and had hosted great fire pits where I communicated the gospel so clearly, but it was when I was in the midst of suffering and a low point in my life that they saw the power of God to save. 
And that's what always happens. That's, that's how it works. People around you have to see the power of Christ be greater than the powers of this world. That's how it advances. It also advances, he says, uh, that in verse 14, and it's because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel out of fear. That what's happening is that as people watch Paul's life, those who believe, these, these women and men are watching Paul and all of the suffering that's happening, and now they're even more confident and more daring to talk about Jesus. It's literally speak the message or say the word. So there, there are now people that are sharing the gospel. Their faith has grown, they're more confident, but now they're going to go and talk about it with their friends and their neighbors. Just a little side note, Christianity does include talking about Jesus, like saying, saying the words, saying the, saying the message of the gospel. I love what it says because it gives me lots of encouragement. It says, they're doing it all the more, which means they were doing it, but now they're doing it more. And they're doing it now without fear, which meant that they had fear. Because it's, I don't know, that's encouraging to me when the Bible isn't like the perfect people. And it's like, oh, these are people that were afraid. And all of a sudden, now they're daring to speak the gospel. And they're doing it because they're watching Paul's life and it's now advancing. And they're out there talking about Jesus. It's really incredible. And this also never fails to happen. I was at somebody's birthday party several months ago. You guys will know who this is. He gave this toast where he goes around and he, it's his birthday, but he talks about everybody else instead of having people talk about him. And he just talked about Jesus to all of these people. It was really wonderful, really beautiful. And then I had a lot more courage immediately. This guy sat next to me. He's like, what's going on with your, these church people? Do you all have like a men's breakfast or something? And I was like, we don't really have that. And we had all these deeper and deeper conversations where I got to talk about Jesus and all of these different levels with this guy. And the reason it happened is because I was given more confidence because I saw what this guy had done. Does that make sense? And that's how it also works. That the community creates this self-encouraging system in which we proclaim the gospel and speak the truth to one another and then speak the truth outside. So this little solo mission that you want to go on maybe is Rambo or something. That's not a real possibility for you. Then the last thing about the advancing of the gospel, it ends in rejoicing. Uh, but it also, he talks about it in terms of motives. There's two types of motivations in talking about Jesus. There's one group, the good group. There's always two groups, right? The good group and the bad group. There's one group, they're a good group. They're doing it because they love. And they're sincere. And then there's this other group that they're out there talking about Jesus. They're proclaiming and they're pre preaching Christ because they have envy and rivalry. They're like, that's the bad group, right? Uh, just sort of a, a quick aside. There is like this broad category of people who are using Christianity, like, I don't know, um, televangelists or Jerry Falwell Jr. is like probably like the best example 
who are building this whole system and this empire where they're using Christianity or people who believe in Christianity to build a lot of political influence or wealth or, or something for themselves. And they're really calling people away from Jesus even, they're, even though they're using the name of Jesus. That, Paul's not talking about that, just so you know. But if he was, and he has at different points, he, and if you're angry about that, like that these people are co-opting Jesus and his name, like you have the company of every writer of the New Testament and all Christians for all time. Like you're not special because you're angry about people co-opting Christianity. Uh, there's, uh, Jesus says, these people who are leading others astray in the name of God, it's better for them to get drowned in the ocean with a weight around their neck than get what I want to do to them. Like that's what Jesus says. Paul says, I just hand them over to Satan. That's like kind of an intense thing. I've never handed anyone over to Satan. But that's like, so if you have like, ah, that makes me angry inside of you, that's like a good, righteous anger to have. But that's not really what he's talking about with this bad group. He's talking about something a little closer to home, a little closer to us. What he's essentially describing is that there were people who were going about the city and they were sharing the gospel and they were preaching about Jesus in the city of Rome as a project, as a way to advance themselves. That's what he means by envy and rivalry. They want to make themselves great. I had a friend who I was meeting with him once and he's like, yeah, I've got 12 targets right now. And I was like, targets? Like, did you become a franchise owner of the retail store? He goes, no, no, like people that are, are good possibilities to become Christians. I've, I've their targets. And so I meet with them and I'm moving them along. And he showed me the spreadsheet of how he was advancing people towards Jesus. And at the end there was this cross and he was moving them further and further along. And it's, it's stat padding. And he's like creating all of these stats. Mission is a project. Some of the language that we even use is, I'm really investing in this person. Uh, you invest in something you would have returned on your investment for, right? I'm making an investment so I can get something back. Or uh, we talk about people, I'm on mission to this person. Oh, it's, are they your friend? Or are they like a project for you? He's talking about there's some people out there who are going to go around and they're going to share the gospel because they want selfish ambition. And they're going to do it because they're, they're kind of looking at other people and they're like, I want to beat them. I want to be better at them. Look at how many people I've convinced to come into heaven. Some of what Paul's describing is that he's stuck there and there's people out there who are sharing the gospel so that they can come back to him and house arrest and be like, guess what? I did what you used to like to do and I got to do it. You didn't get to do it. Like kind of jerks, right? I mean, that's essentially what he's describing. This is selfish ambition. This is the bad kind of motivation. So obviously there's a good motivation, love, sincerity. They just like Jesus. They like the message. They're out there sharing. Then there's the bad one. And you would think that the point of this passage would be don't do the bad one. Don't have a bad motivation. You know, hand those people over to Satan. Instead, what he says is, what does it matter? I'm rejoicing over here. I'm dancing in my house. I'm praising God. I am ecstatic. I am thrilled. I am praising God over and over again because Jesus is being preached. 
how can he say that? Like, how, how can he come to the conclusion? Because obviously something that we get caught up in all the time is we think that we've got to, like, have it right on the inside. Like, my heart has to be good. Then my brain, like, I have to know the truth really well and have zero doubts at all. And then I have to say it correctly. That's, that's the way that I'm going to preach the gospel. All three of those things have to get lined up correctly. Kind of like the Clippers' playoff chances. Kawhi has to be healthy. Paul George has... Then it will work out, right? That's my little Clippers joke, just for Chris. That, that's how we view our own missional endeavor. Once all of that is lined up, then we can do it. And Paul is saying, what does it matter as long as the message is getting spoken. How can he say that? Suppose we all went to LACMA. We should all go to LACMA sometime. This is it. That's not me. That's somebody else. Uh, beautiful place. We, we pay the ticket. We go look at all the exhibits. We go room to room to room. We read the plaques. We're amazed by it. I mean, it really is. It's a beautiful place. The artwork, the, the ingenuity, the creativity, all of it, spectacular. And then we go to the little cafe, and we purchase like $20 ham and cheese sandwiches and a $7 coffee, and it's totally worth it because there's nothing better. I'm just telling you what to do with your life. There's nothing better than actually sitting in the aura and the smells of the museum to talk about what you just experienced. So when you go to the museum, this is what you should do. And then suppose you go and you sit down and you start talking about the artwork. And you look at this, can you show the next artwork? And you start talking about this painting. And you say to your friend, I love Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Mitchell's weeping woman with handkerchief. I love it. And, and then your friend would be like, what are you talking about? Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Mitchell. He's like, I read the plaque. It belongs to them. It's theirs. It says, on donation from the gallery of Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Mitchell. It's their weeping woman with a handkerchief, right? And then you're like, no, that's not what it is. Your friend's like, no, that's Picasso's. Picasso. It was his imagination. It was his creativity. It was his skill. It was the fruit of all of his life. And then that's, that's his. It belongs to him, not to Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell. You're like, all right, and then you go talk to the next one. You're like, I love this Ferdinand and Adele Blockbauer portrait of Adele Blockbauer. And you're, again, you're confused because you've seen The Kiss by Gustav Klimt, and you're like, no, it's Gustav Klimt. It's his portrait. You're like, nah, that doesn't, no, because it's a portrait of Adele, so it must be hers. And I read the little plaque that it's on. It was donated by their estate. It belongs to them. You go on. You're like, I also love sitting there looking at Mr. and Mrs. George Card de Silva's collection of the woods at Givenry. Oh, this is a beautiful one. And then you're like, no, that's Monet's. Monet, the, the artist who inspired generations after generations with all of their use of colors and strokes and all of these things, who gave their whole lives to this kind of artwork, that is Monet's. You're like, no, but the plaque says. How can Paul rejoice 
even when people share the gospel with false motives. Because the gospel does not belong to them. The gospel does not belong to you. It's not yours. It's not from your collection or from your estate. There is nothing you could possibly do to take it away because it's God who from the foundations of the world decided and planned and prepared to die and raise again to bring all of you into the family of God so that you would have eternity with the restored world. That is his. It belongs to him. It's not yours. There is nothing you could possibly ever do to make it yours. You can't make it about you even if you try. Even if you go out there and you're like, I am going to manipulate and stat pad and do all of this as a project and I'm gonna talk about how Jesus died and rose again, there's nothing you could ever do that could take that message and make it yours. And so Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice because whatever is happening, he's making himself known. All of the people out there talking about Jesus, I rejoice because it's him speaking and advancing his message. So let's align our life, our perspective on our life to his perspective on our life. We think our perspective is, it's about my successes and failures, my ups and my downs. Jesus' perspective on your life is, I am making myself known. And when we do that, we'll be able to rejoice, whether we're in prison or in a hospital or in a house we don't like or with a bank account that we don't like or with a boss who's torturous to us, we will rejoice because we will know God's advancing the gospel through all of this. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray again that you would give us a heart and a passion for your message like Paul has. Obviously, give us motives of love and sincerity. Give us confidence. Give us courage. God, we pray for people around us to see the power of your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.